Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on this very special episode, because this is the season one finale of Reppin'. And we're bringing it home with an extremely talented comic book and television writer. She got her start in the comic industry, adapting Japanese and Korean comics into English. Five years and more than 10,000 pages of adaption later, she transitioned to American comics. Since then, some of her credits include writing for DC's Aquaman. Her other projects have been Bitch Planet, Pretty Deadly, and she's had a pivotal role in rebranding Carol Danvers better known as Captain Marvel. She has a company called Milk Fed Criminal Masterminds and is a self-proclaimed feminist. She pulls no punches. So hold on, because this, it's going to be a ride. We've got Kelly Sue DeConnick. Kelly Sue DeConnick, thank you so much for doing this podcast. I really appreciate it. You do so much work. I don't even know where to start because you are super creative. You are a force to be reckoned with in the best way possible. Give me an introduction because I don't think I could cover everything that you do. This is going to sound like a disappointment now after that. I'm a comic book and television writer. That's it. You got to own what you do. You've had a hand in so many uh, popular pieces throughout, you know, the comic book genre. I I wanted to kind of pull that all back a little bit and get to know you a little bit personally. How did your interest sort of begin in comic books? What was your interest? What brought you to like loving it as much as you do? I grew up on Air Force bases. My dad was in the Air Force enlisted, I think, when I was about a year old. And so I grew up on bases all over the world. And comic books in the 70s, at least, I can't speak to today, although I would suspect uh, that that hasn't changed. But Comic books were a big part of base culture. You know, we didn't have the internet. So when you're overseas, you only had one American television station. Everybody read voraciously. The Stars and Stripes bookstore was a a big hub on base. So everybody bought books, everybody traded books, and comic books were huge. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because in our country, the dominant genre of comic books is the superhero comic book. And so it makes a lot of sense that superhero comics would be uh, appealing to people who are in the service or drawn to service. We talked, obviously, before this podcast. I know there's a huge gap between true comic book fans and people like myself who enjoy them, but obviously, you know, we're not hardcore followers who know, you know, every nuance of characters and origins. And, you know, there is a myth out there that I want to address that comic books are not for women 
or that women aren't into comic books. Um, so Kelly Sue, can you help address that and dispel that? I know we talked about this on the phone and that conversation was so interesting that I want to make sure we get that here. Yeah. So that has come out of our just having a, a fairly short memory as a culture. You know, I mean, the first part of that to dispel is this idea that comic books are a new medium or even relatively new in the last century. And they're not. Or comic books might be comic books in the in the way that we think of them conventionally as the sort of staple pamphlet or what we call a single. But comics, comics as a storytelling medium are the oldest storytelling medium after like oral storytelling around the fire, which we can only kind of assume, actually, we assume that verbal language came first, but I don't know that we have any evidence of that. I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps an anthropologist will write to us and let us know. But like the, the, you know, the oldest storytelling that we have are the, like the cave paintings of Lascaux, right? That, that is sequential art that those are comics. So sometimes in recent years, I've, I've actually heard people say that like, oh, well, you know, appeal to guys and not women because women are not very visual, which is maybe one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> right. uh, Thank you. Yes. So it's it's a, a, like sort of like that, though, you know, like, well, women don't like porn because we're not very, because women are not very visual. Like women. Okay. <laughs> like, I don't even know where to start with that. If women were not visual, we would not have fashion magazines. Right. It's just, it's just stupid. It's just completely stupid. We're not another species y'all um that's dumb and so women are taken with visual storytelling as men are or you know anyone identifying anywhere on the gender spectrum the thing is that for a while in our fairly recent history comic books stopped trying to appeal to women and became kind of actively antagonistic to women and women stopped reading comics in droves. Right. That happened in the eighties, about the same time as two other things happened. One is uh, something called targeted marketing. Yes. And in brief, targeting targeted marketing is a, is a highly effective marketing strategy strategy where they separate uh, rather than using one pool of money to market to men and women, they separate and uh, the pools and market separately to men Gender, and women. Yeah. And it tends to work in a way that you get more bang for your buck marketing to men because men are high status in our culture. So women will cross-identify and buy things that are marketed to men, whereas um, men will not cross-identify right. and buy things that are marketed to women. So the things for women tend to be marked up a little bit. A lot, actually. The, the classic example of this is the razor. A pink razor costs more, even though it's the same damn razor in pink, right? <laughs> um, the worst example of this is the Bic pen for her. Do you remember when they made Bic pens? Oh my God, her? that's gross. Like, yeah, which is like, wow, wow. Does that hurt your brain when you think when you think about that? I just, like, I want to be there for that meeting. I want to understand, like, how did that go? Like... <laughs> Who was the woman in the room that day that was like, oh, yeah, I totally need a different pen for my very, very delicate hands. Or possibly I'm going to write with my vagina. I'm not sure what is happening here, but like, what were you thinking? I don't know, but that would be um, an interesting trick if you could do that. I don't want to see it. But, you know, we have sideshows for those things. There's a market. I don't think you need a special pen, though. (laughs) I'm thinking probably any pen would work. Just my guess. 
Yes. Anyway, getting back to your point, target marketing. So target marketing, and this is when, like, you know, in in back in the old days, back in in the ancient times of 1970 or so. <laughs> so it was like, what well, within my lifetime? For yes. instance, Legos. Legos were just Legos. There were not girl Legos and boy Legos. Now there are girl Legos. Those are called friends Legos. They're called and there are what? boy Legos. Friends. They're called friends. Oh. Legos for friends. Because ladies like relationships. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And then, uh, and I, I don't mean it's true that ladies like relationships, although there's a whole other conversation we could get into there about uh, uh, cultural construction of femininity. But anyway, the, yes. the really, really heinous thing about targeted marketing is it works. It works right. really well. So they got more value from for that marketing. And so what happened, targeted marketing comes about at about the same time that companies were acquiring uh, comic book publishers to use them as loss leaders for toys, for selling toys. Right. And then also comics were starting to leave public spaces. So when I, again, when I was a kid, comics were everywhere. They were right. at the 7-Eleven that you went into all the time, which now for some reason, we, we don't go into public spaces as much anymore now that we have the internet. The internet right. is our public space, but there were comics at the grocery store. There were you comics, uh, gas stations, just yeah. literally everywhere. Right. And so everybody might pick up a comic every once in a while. Uh, and there were comics, there was a there was a comic magazine called Calling All Girls that had a circulation of like half a million copies a month. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, that lasted, like, Calling All Girls lasted like 30 years. So anyway, it, it, so comics started going at the same time as targeted marketing happened. Comics started going from public spaces into private spaces with the rise of what's called the direct market, which is the comic book store, right? Got it. Comic book stores were started by collectors in California that were trying to get rid of their collections or trade their collections. And they were actually started in, in large part uh, based on Playboy collections. So, gotcha. And then comics kind of became a part of that same entrepreneurship. So these spaces were not spaces that were incredibly inviting to women. And they were also like private spaces. Right. So you had to kind of find a comic book or seek out a comic book. Right. The comic store, rather. So anyway, all of that stuff happened at the same time, and it pushed women out of the readership. And then in the late 2000s, 2010s, we have another shift, which is the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. Hugely successful. Right. Which is very successful and is very successful with uh, female viewers. And so women start seeking out, women and girls start seeking out comic books. We have the manga boom. Okay. For people who may not know what the manga series is, can you just give a quick recap of what manga, the manga series is? Oh, yeah. So manga is just Japanese for comics. Okay. So when you buy Japanese comics that have been translated into English, you are buying manga. Perfect. Manga is available at the mall. Right. You don't have to go to a private comic book store where you may not feel welcome or know your way around. Right. You can go to Barnes and Noble or B. Dalton. B. Dalton had a huge manga section. You could go to the mall and you could read manga there. And you and I would go to those shops and there would be like girls in the aisles sitting there like, oh, these are the five I'm going to buy. This is the one I'm going to read in the store, you know? Right. Awesome. <laughs> Um, and then they were, and they were big and they were $10. And this is also interesting. Like whenever I hear that thing where like, well, girls don't like comics because they're just not very visual. Like, okay, 
the manga boom was led by girls and women. And those books were 10 bucks a pop. That's expensive. Yes. And they had to learn to read them backwards. Whoa. It is. It was literally easier because Japanese comics read right to left. Right. It was literally easier to learn to read backwards than it was to navigate American comics. What does that say, right? Right. That's insane. That is the threshold. Like we, we will spend $50 on five comics and we'll learn to read backwards rather than have to figure out American shared universe comics or go into an American comic book store. And that's really astonishing. So MCU, the, uh, the manga boom, and then the rise of cosplay. Yes. Also made women feel welcome and comfortable and having an entree into comics. So they would find these characters that they really liked and they would build their costumes and then to sort of have a legitimacy in that character, um, then they make sure that they know their stuff. Right. Right. And sometimes it happens the opposite way. It's not all like, I mean, probably more often it happened the opposite way where they would have the comic and love the character and then decide to get into cosplay. Right. Right. So all those three things started bringing women back into comics in droves as readers. And then all of a sudden you get these headlines that are like, you know, Oh my God, women are discovering comics or, you know, like <laughs> there are comics for women and Ooh. women in the boys club or whatever it is. And it's just like, this is not a revolution. You guys, this is a restoration. We've been away for a while because things got bad and we were not welcome. And now we're coming back. It really says a lot when you're saying that people have to literally read backwards and we're yeah. and women were willing to do that and spend $10 per comic. I mean, that's, that's like a, the Starbucks of, of comic books, right? That's like a premium. But, but here's the thing, right? You go into an American comic book store. First of all, you get to find one, right? Second, a lot of them look like a swap meet, right? right? You know, and that is the cliche. But I have been to enough comic book stores to know that like... There's some truth to that. There is some truth to that. Yeah. And thankfully, less so these days because you just can't do that and survive anymore. Right. But it does come from a place of truth. Of course. First, you got to find the comic book shop. Then you have to make yourself go in, right? And then you go in and unlike any other bookstore you've ever been in your life, comics are shelved by publisher. So this is like going to Barnes & Noble and asking to see, yes, may I see the penguin section, please? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking for something in Simon & Schuster. (laughs) Like, no, that's not how it works. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to get back to something. So during this sort of shift where I guess women were essentially booted from the comic book world, you stayed in it. Can you talk about that? Oh, no, that's not true. Okay. So what happened? First of all, I should say, I should make the the caveat that there were, I mean, there were women that did stay readers through all of, of course, that. And of there course. were also publishers that continued to appeal to women. In particular, I should cite DC's Vertigo line, yes. which was run by Karen Berger and Shelley Bond. The series, the, probably the most famous series from the Vertigo line is Sandman, which had a heavily, heavily female readership. That said, I stopped reading because I didn't have a comic book store because I didn't go right. to Stars and Stripes anymore, right? right. So... And then I walked by a used bookstore on my way home from school where I would buy used books, but I, there was a there was a, a bin where I could buy comics. And like somebody was a big Marv Wolfman fan because I was always buying secondhand Marv Wolfman comics there. And um, that was when I first started noticing who the creators were. And then like, I think I we moved and I stopped walking by that store. So again, I stopped reading comics for right. a long time. And then my friend Elaine Dove in high school like slipped me... Uh, Electra Assassin, okay. sort of like, you know, first one's free, honey, kind of. Um, <laughs> and gotcha. Yeah, and that got me back in for a while. And then I never had a comic book store right. in Texas where I grew up. So I was like borrowed comics from folks when I read them, but okay. was not a regular buyer. It wasn't until I was in New York that I had a regular shop. How did you go from like passing by and, uh, and buying uh, comic books from a bin to where you are now. Uh, back afterwards. Fair enough. Uh, it was never super intentional. I have a theater degree and did, you know, improv comedy and a lot of a lot of performance-based work. And I never had any intention of being a writer. Huh. Okay. But I lived in New York City and it was incredibly expensive and I would do basically whatever gig I could get. Okay. And I kind of found my way into a comics creators community through one of my favorite comics, which was this book called Planetary by Warren Ellis. And I was blown away by it. It was just this tremendous comic. It was about the history of pop comics and pulp, pulp literature as well. It, it like That was all woven through it in a way that was just incredibly cool to me. So that was, a you know, as we were all sort of getting to know the internet and, um, and I found the Warren Ellis forum on Delphi forums and started interacting with people there. And the interesting thing about that is so many of the people I met on that board when we were all just fans are my colleagues. 
Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, in fact, I think that's there's great. somebody who's actually doing a documentary on the board. And there have been a couple of oral histories done of it because most of the biggest names, like we're sort of one cohort, okay. we're all together on that board. And that's where I met my husband on a comic book posting forum. We are super cool, like massively cool. Own it. But at that point, where again, I, I want you to take me to school on this. Were there many women behind the scenes working in sort of that genre? Like, did you have anybody to look to? There weren't that many. There were women. And the women that there that were there have a tendency to be erased. So there were women creatives working more than there were women in the high-profile creative positions, though there were a lot of women editors. Um, women, a lot of women editors, a lot of women assistants. But like on the Ellis Poston forum, like all of the moderators were women. Most of the big comic and science fiction conventions were also organized by women. There's a lot of, in particular, like science fiction will be like, oh, you know, that's like like that's a heavily dude thing. Uh oh, like <laughs> science fiction fandom organized by and for women. In fact, to this day, the single most organized and amazing convention I have ever been to is WISCON, which is a feminist science fiction convention in Madison, Wisconsin, that is in its 40-something year, I think. 40 years. Wow. Yeah, it is a tremendous convention, very, very well organized, uh, incredibly inclusive, because it is a feminist convention, they are able to provide or, or willing to provide childcare. Whoa, what? Yeah, that's awesome. So, I so when my daughter was two, I was taking her with me to Wisconsin so I could go and participate and be a part of these things that I love, but that's I awesome. could also have my child with me and have her safe and let her, they have programming for children. They have actual like licensed childcare on site. That is, I believe a dollar, a dollar, a dollar. It's a dollar to register for childcare. Uh, huge shout out to this convention. It's called Wiscon. Wiscon, W-I-S-C-O-N. And I super, super love it. That's amazing. Tell me a little bit about the landscape in terms of the perspective that many of these uh, comic books take. So talk about what is out there or what was out there and what your position is in terms of making sure that the female perspective is represented and appropriately. There's this idea that men, you know, are as clearly and obviously as diverse as their numbers, but... <laughs> Writing right. women is somehow tricky. It doesn't happen to me much anymore because because I've been perceived as being mean when it's happened in the past. But I don't think I'm being mean. I think I'm being memorable. Um, but but you see, that's another thing that, that I have a real issue with. Like when people when women speak their minds and are assertive and just saying what needs to be said. Why are we mean or why are we called a witch? or other things. You know, why is that? I, fuck them. I don't care. Like, you think I'm mean? I scare you? Good. Get out of my way. Sit down. I'm five feet tall. What are you afraid I'm going to do? I'm going to hurt your feelings? I'm not the snowflake in this situation then, love. I know, right? Like, why are we, why are we labeled that? I don't understand that at all. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's problematic, but, yes. um, but the thing is like, you just can't, you don't, Right. You don't have the time right. or the energy to make them feel comfortable while you tell them the truth. 
Right. And why is that our responsibility to do that? It's not. It's not. For a while, young men would ask me when I would have speaking engagements for tips as to uh, how to write female characters. And my counsel to them was always uh, pretend we're people. And apparently that's mean. Do you almost have to hold on to your eyeballs to not roll them back into your head that you have to say that to somebody? Well, here's the thing is like, I, I was like, I would get counsel of like, you know, don't be mean. It's coming from a good place. At least he's trying. You know what? But here's the thing. Like, I don't feel like I'm being mean. I may no. be embarrassing him for a moment. Right. He's going to remember it. He's going to remember right. it forever. He's going to learn that lesson or he's going to hate me. Right. Maybe. I don't give a shit not going to forget. That's something he's going to chew on for quite some time. But when you're writing comp, you're writing characters, what is the one thing that you always try to bring in when you're writing uh, your characters? And my next question is going to be sort of when you started in this business, what was like the biggest challenge that you faced and how did you overcome it? It's not rocket science. When you are writing a character, whether you are writing anywhere on the gender spectrum or you're writing an alien or any character that you are writing, you're writing from the same places, right? You know, human beings are human beings and you are writing from what does this character want? Right. What is standing in their way? Where does their pain come from? What's their fear? No matter what character you're building, the questions are all the same. And I think where you get into trouble is when you are creating characters that have no interior lives when you are creating characters who only exist as objects to motivate other characters. So I have a thing. Are you familiar with the Bechtel test? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the Bechtel test is a test where you take a piece of media and you say, are there, there are three questions for the Bechtel test. They are, are there two named women characters? Right. Do they speak to each other? And is it about something other than a man? Right. So I feel like the Bechtel test is sometimes a little too advanced for comics. And so I have a test for comics that I call the sexy lamp test. Tell us about that. Can you remove this female character and replace her with a sexy lamp? And if your plot still works, fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. I mean, did you have... I don't know, people, you know, supervisors at that point, at some point in your career, maybe early on, where they were still, that were making you write a sexy lamp. Um, Nobody can make me write anything. But yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had some fights. It's very seldom on legitimate grievances. I've had fights where I had an editor tell me, I think we've got all of the female readers we're going to get, which was as though, well... You know, there are seven women who read comics and we've got them all. So we should stop centering them and maybe go back to writing for the dudes. And, you know, my feeling has always been I like to write assuming a female readership and centering the female reader. And men are welcome to read my comics. And I hope you get something out of them mm-hmm. the same way women have always been invited to read comics that were centering the male readership, but I'm not catering to you. And I won't apologize for not catering to you in particular. And this is especially and in particular with regard to bitch planet, which the male we get on bitch planet is astounding. 
Tell me about it. Yeah. So Bitch Planet is a overtly feminist satire. It plays with um, exploitation tropes of the 1970s and 80s in a satirical, hopefully comical way and is set in a future that's really sort of a retro future, but it's set in a future where uh, the world is run by a literal patriarchy and women who are deemed non-compliant are shipped to an off-world prison called Bitch Planet. And then they play a like gladiatorial sport there. First of all, we get letters from women who love the book and that is amazing. And sometimes we get letters occasionally from men who love the book as well. But we, I will also get letters from men who like to explain feminism to me, which is fun. And, uh, and, and also like dudes whining about how there are no good guys. First of all, there are good dudes in the comics, so keep reading yeah. um, or read more carefully, maybe. But also, like, it's not for you. If if you don't like it, stop reading it. Like, it doesn't mean anything about right. you if it's if you're not into it. I had a, a guy explaining how he liked the comic except all the feminist parts, and I thought, like, what are you reading? I don't know what parts are in it that like would have fascinated me. Cut out the panels that you're reading. So I don't know what parts of it aren't feminist, and I'd like to fix them. What what do you think when you heard that? Oh, I loved it. I'm try I try to take the high road, except clearly when I'm on podcasts. So Kelly Sue, you're very clear on who you are and what your point of view is, and obviously you have the strength and the position to speak out. For people who may not have that yet, or haven't discovered that within themselves, or can't be so outspoken, what would you say to them? Uh, like I'm not suffering. I am. Um, I, I want to keep it all in perspective. Of course. Like I'm first of all, I'm a white woman. I am not I'm a straight cisgendered white woman. I am barely on the marginalized scale here. I need to be very clear about that. Yes, of course. I risk very little opening my mouth because of the amount of privilege that I have. So it's a lot easier for me because the cost is lower. And also because of my personality because I am a genuine extrovert, because I super don't give a shit if you like me, it is a low cost for me. I don't give a shit if you, if I say something to a dude and it makes him uncomfortable, I'm not going to pay a high price for it. And so for that reason, I think it is incumbent upon me because the price is so low to try and say these things so that folks for whom the price would be higher don't have to and possibly benefit from. But, you know, I always, I say I am willing to make people uncomfortable so that maybe my daughter doesn't have to. So tell me a little bit more about the, the, the philosophy of that. Why, why that is so important. I mean, that is, that is a really important statement and it is something that I wanted to bring up because, you know, women, young women are still facing, uh, a multitude of issues still. The list goes on and on and on. So tell me a little bit more about that statement. Well, I mean, my daughter is also a white woman. And so when right. she is older, I hope the world has made some progress and I hope that um, she has less of a fight, but it will probably still be easier for her to speak. It will probably also be easier for her to share her platform or use her privilege to leverage other voices, to give the mic to someone else who may not have as easy of access to it. Um, And I think those things are super, super important. I really appreciate that you said that and you understand your position and privilege and going a step further that you're using that to leverage it for people who can't. Well, I think it's, I think it's, 
while important not only for women who pay low costs to open their mouths, but I think it's also for us uh, important for us to body block for women who will pay higher prices so that they can speak their minds, so that their voices can be a part of the discourse. I think it is important that we get in there and block for them, defend them, give them our microphones, shut up and listen to them. Can you run for office, Kelly Sue? (laughs) Not with my mouth. Here's the other thing that I wanted to dovetail into, because you obviously had a huge hand in shaping Aquaman. And then, of course, uh, rebranding Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel. Please tell us about that. And I was thrilled to see your cameo in Captain Marvel. And I am, I definitely want to talk a little bit about your work with the Marvel world. And, you know, you shared an anecdote with me um, when you go to conventions, the lines are a lot longer. So start with telling me a little bit about your work with, with Aquaman and Carol Danvers and and what you did and why it was important. Okay. So my work on Aquaman is relatively recent. I think I have been on Aquaman for just about a year now. My first issue came out the same month as the movie did, although I was not involved with the film at all. So yes, I've been writing Aquaman for uh, about the last year, and I'm going to be on it for a bit longer. I can't say exactly how much longer, although I think I have an inkling. Now I'm also doing for DC a book called Historia, which is for the Black Label line, and which is a, a sort of like top shelf out of continuity. And Historia is the history of Wonder Woman's Amazons from the perspective of the Amazons. Oh, that's um, awesome. I think, yeah, I'm super excited about it. Doing it with Phil Jimenez. I, I was like, I want to do a Homerian epic centered on a woman. So this is Hippolyta's story, like an epic oh tale of Hippolyta. Super, super, super into that. For Marvel, I did, I was the first ongoing woman writer of an Avengers title with Avengers Assemble which was a lot of fun. And then I did a run on Captain Marvel, which was the basis for the film. And then I was a consultant on the film for about a year and worked on the film. And then they were kind enough to give me a cameo in the film too, which was super fun. And my children didn't notice it. (laughs) Well, I did. And it was really great to see you. You love me more than my children. I do. I do. I know where I stand. Well, I don't see you as often though, but I I would love you just (laughs) as much. I would love you just as much. Now, you attend many comic book conventions, and there's a line to see you. Can you tell me about what you've noticed since the release of Captain Marvel? Um, Can you describe some of the fan experiences post-release? Yeah, so since the movie happened, my lines are significantly younger. Yeah, so I have a lot of 10-year-old girls in my line now, which is pretty amazing. And they all want to talk about the movie, which is great. And, and so we will talk about the movie and I'll ask them what their favorite parts are. And the flurkin gets a lot of love, yes. which I totally understand. But the other thing that gets a lot of love that sort of surprises me is the scene at the end when Jan Rog says, this is it. This is what I've been training you for. This is the moment where, you know, you put the fireworks away and we take each other on mano a mano and blah, 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 blah. blah. And then she just blasts them. She right. says, I have nothing to prove to you. And that is such a... That is a moment that is so progressive, it is almost transgressive, right? Because that is a moment that is so empowering because what it says is, I don't have to play by your rules. I don't have to value what you value. And I don't have to put away my gifts because they're not yours. Right. Right. I don't have to 
fight with one hand tied behind my back because this is not a thing that you respect. And young girls can articulate that that is a powerful moment for them. And that is incredible to me. And the guy who is like the creative director or art director of Entertainment Weekly dropped me a note after the film came out and was like, I want to make sure that you understand that there's a generation of young girls for whom this is going to be their favorite movie and what that means. And that was like, I, I like until that email, I, it hadn't really hit me what I had gotten to be a part of and how lucky I was. That is a really profound moment for these young kids, young girls to mm-hmm. not only s- recite that line, but understand the meaning of it. And it's powerful for boys, too. Like, there's no apology or like, oh, I'm slumming it for Captain Marvel to be my favorite superhero. Right. Like, that is also powerful. Yes, that is absolutely. Crazy cool. Last question is really, you had a, a, a tweet that you used, which was visible women. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that movement and what that was about? Sure. Okay. So Visible Women came out of a number of my colleagues would come to me wanting help finding women to staff their books. So there was a perception that I want to hire women, but I just don't know any women that can draw superheroes or I don't know what, you know, or like they're just hard to find or whatever it is. And I very much like the like you know, how, how do I write women, pretend they're people? Um, right. it, it was very hard not to like roll my eyes. It was coming from a good place. They want to hire women, but there's just this idea that there are no women out there to hire. So I had this idea to start this hashtag on Twitter called Visible Women. We do it twice a year. It happens in August and it happens in March. The way it works is I basically give my... Twitter feed over for a Monday. And if you are a woman who works in the comic book industry, or it's really like women in publishing, but primarily it's women in comics, you can tweet at us your portfolio. We have a format that we like you to use. It's like, this is my name. This is where you can find my portfolio. This is what I do. And here's like a word about my style. And it's open to anybody working in any aspects of comics. It's open to writers or letterers or colorists or editors or um, anybody who works in any aspect of the industry. And then we signal boost in that hashtag. And then we put together a spreadsheet based on the tweets. And then we make that spreadsheet available free of charge to any hiring professional in the comic book or publishing industry. Now it is uncurated. There are usually a couple hundred, I think two to 300 entries on the spreadsheet. And so we send a little form letter out with it if you request it and say, you know, look, this is uncurated. We cannot guarantee that these are people who are ready to work or people who can return your emails. Just as we advise them to have a lawyer in any professional pursuit, we also advise you to have a lawyer. Yeah. We suggest that you divide it up. So there are about 25 portfolios for each person in your office to look at. Mm-hmm. Everybody picks their favorites and narrow it down to what you think is useful. We do it on Monday. The spreadsheet's available by Friday. And um, and then we'll send it out all year. If you, if you would like a copy of the spreadsheet right now, you can go to my website, which is milkfed.com 
M-I-L-K-F-E-D dot U-S slash contact or just pick contact from the drop down menu. And there's a little form you can fill out and say that you want a copy of the Visible Women Spreadsheet. It's one of the drop down items, I think. And we'll send it to you. You're using your platform to to even make this available that is incredible it's pretty cool and we've and we hear stories every once in a while about people who got hired off of it and you know we've hired off of it which is pretty cool it's awesome yeah so lastly you know what what do people have to gain with more representation and more inclusion and and you know a female perspective for people who still are like don't get it for whatever we are in dire straits folks they have a lot of problems <laughs> right now <laughs> And if you need me to explain that to you, you don't have Google or CNN <laughs> or even Fox News. There are a lot of yeah. problems. And when we marginalize people, we limit their ability to contribute. We limit their ability to deliver upon their gifts. We limit their ability to bloom into the human beings that they were meant to be, right? Absolutely. And so as a culture, as an organism, we can't have half of our cells not participating in, you know, fighting the viruses. When you marginalize, you, you, you ask or you force people to sit out the fight. Yeah. We don't have it. We don't have, we can't afford that. So if you cannot understand this from the perspective of justice, if you cannot understand this from the perspective of love and generosity, if that is beyond you, understand it from the practical sense that it serves none of us. This idea that there's this zero sum thing where if we have other people sitting things out and there's more pie for us, you guys, the pie is on fire. Like <laughs> the metaphor's not working. Okay. We need right. everybody. We yeah. need everybody contributing to the limits of their ability. And in order to do that, they have to have their basic needs met. Right. We need to have income equality. We have to have basic human rights. We have to have health care because if people are not healthy, if people are living in poverty, they cannot contribute. It's that simple. I agree. It's really amazing that the most important and basic human needs are such a struggle. Everyone needs to be recognized, valued and cared for. I mean, that's the bottom line. And at the end of the day, you know, the thing that we, we really need to know is that we're really better when we're all working together. We all have so much to bring to the table. I always have such a great time talking with you, but I know I have to let you go um, because you need to kick ass elsewhere. So I'm going to ask you to help us sign us off. Okay, so Carol Danvers is the character of Captain Marvel. And Carol and I are very different people, but there are some ways in which we are alike. The, the thing I like the most about Carol is, is I think one of the better qualities that I have as well. And I think is one of the things that characterizes her fan base, which is these are people who want to do good and they're willing to mess up and take responsibility for their mistakes and get back up and keep going. And that is who I would like to be. I I know that playing it safe is not an option, and therefore I'm going to screw up. 
And I don't want to be someone who tries to hide from their mistakes or tries to deny them or won't hear it out or won't grow. The question now is, as a writer, and I'm going to kick this back to you, is how do you say that in a sign-off? This is Kelly Sudeconic, and I represent humility. Thank you to Kelly Sue DeConnick for coming on and having this no-holds-barred conversation. What a blast! Be sure to follow Kelly Sue on Twitter. Her handle is at Kelly Sue. And stop by her website and keep up with her amazing work. Her website is milkfed.us. As we end season one, I'd really like to thank each and every single one of our guests that came to Reppin to have these notable, amazingly talented, good people for a freshman podcast was really incredible. Each guest enthusiastically embraced the concept, shared not only their time and energy, but just gave so much of themselves to us. Thank you for all of it. This is Evelyn, creator and executive producer of this podcast. To you, the audience, thank you for your listenership and support. We want to entertain. We want to give you insight to who these people really are. But we also want to address social issues, start conversations, give different perspectives, as well as empower and lift people up. And of course, thank you to my crew, my technical director and musical composer, Nelson Pinero, D.B. Butters, for his time, talent, and care. To Gracie Kong for being a constant source of love. Reppin' can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So please, share with your friends, subscribe, and review. Thank you for an incredible season one, and we can't wait till season two. Reppin' is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Till next time, stand up and represent. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of the Go Kid Go Network. Do your kids love wacky worlds, superheroes, and inventing? Of course they do. That's why our shows Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow are set in Pflugerville, the nonstop fun and adventure universe where imagination, creativity, STEM, and positive role models abound. Join the Pflugerville fun by searching for Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.